To the Lubber's Hole, you're with Ian and with Mike as we continue our reread of all of the Aubrey Matry novels of the author Patrick O'Brien. Mike, here we are deep, deep, deep into the nutmeg of consolation. How deep did we get last week? And is it deep or shallow as we continue this week? What's going on? Oh, you bet. This is uh, yeah, this is great. Last week in Chapter 5, we had that newly promoted midshipman Miller, who had spotted a Dutch ship whose master had told Jack where the Cornelie would be watering. So, you know, this ship they've been searching for, searching for, they now have a beat on her. Stephen was worried that Diana might sell her great diamond to relieve their relative poverty, giving her a moral advantage in the relationship. The nutmeg, disguised as a Dutch merchantman, had tried to get close enough to the Cornelie, but her disguise was pierced and the French frigate opened fire before the nutmeg was close enough to do any real damage. In one shot in that exchange, Miller, the master, and three others were killed. Now, Jack is getting ready, hoping to head back out towards the Salababu Passage because he wants to get there by night, kind of being chased by the Cornelais, so that he can hide behind an island and come back out with the weather gauge and then, you know, fire and border in the smoke. That's the plan from chapter five. And this time in chapter six, yeah. we're going to have that chase towards the passage. Um, we're also going to have lame duck ruses, twists and turns, dueling chasers, a Russell Crowe stern window decoy alert, <gasps> and a culted Star Trek star. Huh. Don't get one of those every chapter. Oh, no. Blue Devils, Killick smiles, a gunroom dinner with old, old port, lots of sails and rigging, and a very surprising encounter. Oh, Mike, I, I can't think what you can possibly mean. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Dueling chases it sounds much more exciting than dueling banjos. For some reason, that's put me in mind of dueling banjos, but I don't think, <laughs> I don't think yeah. uh, anybody in an O'Brien novel has ever played the banjo. Maybe, maybe we'll get there to, in, in book 21. So here we are. They're trying to get through this passage at night to get there. Jack needs the Connolly ready to turn and begin the chase in an hour. Turns out that true to her role here, she's ready in 47 minutes. And Jack's off on this lame duck mission of keeping the Connolly tagged along, headed off into the night. The French are far enough behind that they can avoid the nutmeg's 32-pound carronades but they're close enough that they, with their long guns, can hit the nutmeg with the broadside whenever they get the chance. So there's some real jeopardy here for Jack. He's taking a bit of a chance. The Cornerly is not as fast as Jack had thought that she'd be. That's good news. But it is difficult, though, to keep this subterfuge going, to make the nutmeg look like she's doing all that she can to run away at seven and a half knots. This is a chapter, Mike, of lots of seamanship and... And more, I think, from Jack. And he set his stall out in the previous chapter to say, here's what I'm going to try and do. This chapter, to me, is really all about, can Jack really pull it off? Can he and the ship's crew around him pulling it off? To get things squared away, he makes a field promotion. He makes Mr. Seymour acting third lieutenant 
to take the master's watch. Not really what we would have expected a couple of chapters ago when these two midshipmen came aboard here, but great for Seymour. Jack, meanwhile, goes to his cabin to work with the chaser gun crews. They're arguing about whether they had hulled the Cornelie or not. And Mike, I think that somebody did spot a hulling shot right at the end of the last chapter, but they're still arguing about whether it was true or not. Jack sets about aiming a chaser himself. He's going to determine how best can they appear to be shooting in earnest, but not wound the Cornelie so that the chase is over. If she's wounded but has no spare canvas, she'd likely give up. She might also stop chasing if she smokes this lame duck caper that Jack is pulling here. So there's a very fine line that Jack is trying to tread, not only with the seamanship, but with the gunnery. He doesn't, on the other hand, want to let the Cornelie get a lucky shot. That would slow the nutmeg down and expose her to the broadside from these long French guns. He gives orders to the gunner for firing steadily, but missing. Yeah. Reed comes in, you know, as as they're working out this firing situation with an invitation for Jack, who's, you know, they says, you know, everybody understands Jack's missed dinner and the gun room has invited him to a cold collation. And and Jack thinks to himself, yeah, he is really desperately hungry. And he thinks, okay, you know, I'm going to stop and wash my hands first. So he goes to step into his quarter gallery, still looking at the chasers and doesn't realize that that part of the ship has been blown away. So he almost falls into the sea here. Uh, he's thinking, you know, he he managed to react quickly enough to save himself, but he's wondering what would happen if the doctor did the same thing. So he has them rope that door closed so Stephen does not fall out. I can't think of a more ignominious way to be lost at sea <laughs> than, to, than, to, than, to, than to fall out of a non-existent stern gallery when you're just going for a quiet constitutional lair. What a way exactly. to go. Don't, don't tell my friends. Tell my friends I was beheaded in a boarding action. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm thinking that Jack might just want to save Stephen's, you know, life by not having him fall through. But he might remember, you know, he's already, thro- you know, he's fallen through a perfectly fine stern window. My God, what if there is actually no ship there? <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. Well, at the end of this cold collation, this quick luncheon thing at the gun room, Adams comes in and he's holding the prayer book open and all the nutmegs gather on deck to bury the dead from this first encounter at Neil Desperandum. The Cornelie sees what they're doing and stops firing in respect. After the service, Jack realizes that the moon is already rising. So we know time is of the essence here. We want to be in the dark, not in the light here. And feeling, and Jack noticed that the Cornelie is still pumping hard and going slow. And this raises that possibility that, you know, by the time they get to the end of the passage, it's it's going to be light and that's not going to work. So Jack hopes that once she's finished pumping and gets all this water out of her bill, she'll be quicker. And he goes down and tells the gunner to continue to encourage her. Like, let's be shooting a little more steadily you know, falling just a little bit short here. You know, still don't hit her, but come on, let's encourage her to come on. It's really fascinating how Jack is just shifting the line a little bit between risking hitting versus risking not really scaring her at all. And I like that mention of the moon. We've had the sun and the moon already invoked in this book as kind of signs and foretellers of how the time is moving on and space is moving on as well. We're going to have a couple more heavenly bodies used as signals of time coming up later on in this chapter, I think. Jack tells Fielding to keep an eye on the French, to draw away if shots start to come aboard, because they can, as it were, take take the foot off the anti-gas pedal that they've currently got down here. 
Right. Jack goes and checks on the carpenter, who, in honor of the episode that we all remember, I guess, from Master and Commander, is busy building a set of nutmeg decoy stern windows for the Connolly to chase in the darkness. So, Mike, here's our Russell Crowe alert. This goes all the way back, not only to the movie Master and Commander, but goes all the way back to the novel Master and Commander. Reasonably early on, Jack, in this very Cochrane-esque character, is trying to outsail the Dédaigneurs and pulls an exact replica of a Cochrane maneuver, this idea of putting a lighted raft to spoof the enemy into thinking they're really still chasing Jack's ship here. Jack looks out then, as this is all preparing, across the sea, to where it's turning dark. Stephen calls it wine dark in a really, really important telling little moment. We'll come back to that in a second. This wine dark patch of sea that Stephen sees as the setting sun comes along here near the mouth of the Salibabu passage. He hopes that they'll have a stronger breeze in the passage. First sign that Jack and the crew here are getting a little bit impatient of the passage of time and the speed of the ship. He corrects course to stay on the south side of the passage, which is where he'll need to be to turn behind this island that he's planning to use as a little hidey place. And that will allow him to avoid the full force of the tide, which is going to start flowing against them in a few hours. And again, Mike, no coincidence here that we've heard the moon mentioned and now we get the tide mentioned once again. All this is really oppressing Jack's spirit. He doesn't like the dark sea. He doesn't like the idea of land looming ahead. The death of midshipman Miller has brought out all of his superstitious side and he's starting to get baked into some of his really irrational old sailor school superstitious notions here. By the way, can I can I just talk about wine dark sea? You, you really need to. Oh man! So besides, uh, we we get a little smile here because it's a look ahead to the title of a, a small number of books ahead in the canon here, the wine dark sea. It's coming soon. So if you've looked across to your shelf of spines of Patrick O'Brien books on your on your shelf here, you know the wine dark sea is coming soon. And this being a Patrick O'Brien allusion, of course, it's got a quotation behind it. And lots of you, I think, know this, but let's just dig into it for those of you who haven't twigged. Wine Dark Sea is a quotation from Homer, in particular from Homer's Odyssey, the heroic poem. Therefore, home territory for Patrick O'Brien. And just like also, Mike, there are no Patrick O'Brien quotes or allusions where you dig behind it. Oh, and there's a message about lightness and color and hope and joy and expectations for the future. No, 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 no. Every time you dig behind the Patrick O'Brien quote, there's something else. Let's hear the verse of Homer that this quote comes from. And what if one of the gods does wreck me out on the wine dark sea? I have a heart that is inured to suffering and I shall steal it to endure that too. For in my day, I have had many bitter and painful experiences in war and on the stormy seas. So let this new disaster come. (laughs) Really well chosen, really super well chosen quote there. Well, with, with these kinds of thoughts running through his mind, Jack just sits watching and listening. And at three bells in the dog watch, he remembers Stephen's reply to the question, why is it called a dog watch? And, you know, Jack remembers that Stephen says instantly, because it's curtailed. And he thought that it was the wittiest thing that he'd ever heard. And he thinks to himself that he's repeated it perhaps too often, remembering that sometimes he would have to explain it to some of the listeners that, you know, that the dog watches are made considerably shorter than the other watches. They're curtailed, cur tailed dog uh, right uh, so 
you know, uh, again, uh, now all of a sudden Jack is laughing at the joke again. He's feeling better. He slides down a backstay, sees Fielding and the bosun working with tackles, getting them ready to hoist out this decoy boat, this decoy raft later. Fielding says that the French were making eight knots and had hit the larboard stern gallery again. So here's here's Jack's privy area, you know, one, once more being pounded away here. And Jack says, you know, he had just fitted this thing out with a new basin, a new China basin, most uncommon genteel. They checked their speed again, eight knots and one fathom, just as Jack had thought. And, and he's encouraged as the sun goes down, outlining the Frenchman behind him. So, you know, this whole time thing, maybe, maybe we're gaining a little bit. Mm. It's interesting how slowly he ratchets up the tension here. I'm not already kind of in pulse pounding mode, but we're just asked to hope and also doubt a little bit about whether this is all going to get pulled off here. Killick tells Jack that he's moved his night gear into Mr. Warren's cabin. That's the cabin of the uh, the dead master. And Killick says that Seymour, who should by rights have that cabin, is in fact overjoyed to sleep in the midshipman's berth until Jack's cabin is set to rights again. That is to say, until all, all this damage to all these quarter galleries is taken care of and the place is safe for a chap to go and have a quiet moment again. <laughs> and there's this really, really great uh, description of Killick's expression here. It says, Killick's face had the wooden expression that it always wore when he was either suppressing that which was true or suggesting that which was false. And Jack knew perfectly well that his steward had quite unnecessarily forced the arrangement on Seymour and the gunroom unnecessarily because it would certainly have been offered. <laughs> Don't you just love this? This is yeah. Yeah. Killick trying to look out for Jack, Jack being able to read him so well. And and Jack, you know, knowing all this, tells Killick to bring the case of 87 port, so 1787 port, wow. you know, bring it to the gun room. And, you know, in the gun room, Jack tells the officers that, he, you know, he's afraid he has to trespass on their hospitality, so that he can keep the stern windows lit all night, so that the chasers can keep firing back and forth. And also, as you pointed out, Ian, so, so we'll have a bathroom. Um, yeah. But the gun room is happy to have him. And Jack then asks forgiveness for speaking of service matters there in the gun room. You know, usually it's just social when the captain visits. And he asks that, you know, overnight that they heave the log every bell while they're in the passage. He wants to, you know, really watch this speed thing. And he wants to let the watch below get some sleep, prepare for tomorrow. He wants to light the gallery fires again. Let's get them fed. We know Jack always wants them well fed before battle. And he says that he's going to turn in right after they eat supper here and take the middle watch tonight. He thanks Seymour for his kindness, you know, <laughs> and kind of making Seymour out to be a good guy, even though he knows Killick's twisted his arm here. And he asks Stephen if they can visit his patients while the galley fires are being lit. He talks then with Stephen about what he calls the constraint of having your captain in your bosom. Brian likes talking about bosoms a lot, mostly male bosoms and things concealed in them. But anyhow, what he's really talking about here is whether Jack stays in the gun room. And there's a little bit of a... Uh, a, a dampener on the freewheeling social stylings that you might encounter in the gun room. Anyhow, he says he's ordered a case of this port to make up for it, hopes that Stephen doesn't mind. And and he expects, I th- remember we had all this needle, this low-key needle going on between Jack and Stephen in the last chapter. Well, Stephen's back into it here. I think Jack was hoping for a, oh, port, how nice. But Stephen says, I mind it very much indeed. Pouring that irreplaceable liquid into my messmates is impious. 
Hey, man, Stephen the Grouch, I'm, I'm right there with you, sir. What? Good port? Wasted on youngsters? Ah. Jack says that having this port as a, as a little a gift offering here will take some of the stiffness out of his being there in the guise of the captain. He doesn't want to be the killjoy in the gunroom. And he says to Stephen, you are luckier than I am in that way. They do not look upon you with any respect. Ah, that is to say, not with any undue respect. I mean, they have an amazing respect for you, of course, but they do not look upon you as a superior being. And Jack has tried to smooth things over here, but he's clearly stumbled on his, uh, his meanings a little bit here. And Stephen invites a little bit more of this. He says, oh, do they not? They certainly looked upon me as a very disagreeable one this afternoon. I was cursed, sullen, snappish and dogged with them all. You astonished me, says Jack. Had something put you out? Like, it hasn't been written all over your face and your character for the last three chapters. And Stephen changes the subject a little bit here. I think he's a bit doing a bit of dissembling, as Killick can on, uh, on the odd occasion. He tells Jack that he'd set aside a corpse to open to study this case of the moth ambles that we heard about. But before he could get Jack's permission, he says, some criminal, or at least some busy hand, had sewn it up and placed it among those you buried. And Jack, well... He says, you've got, you've got nothing to complain about here. What a ghoul, he says. What a ghoul you are, Stephen, upon my word. It's it's funny because I, I almost think that, you know, Stephen, of course, he has been a little surly anyways, but I think he really is pissed that, hey, wait a minute, I was going to do this autopsy and learn something about this disease, and they threw him off the side of the ship. <laughs> and, and Jack, I think, is sort of reacting like, oh, my gosh, and that's got you upset? Stephen, you are a ghoul. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, your your bank is broke and you're thousands of miles away from your wife who's now born your daughter, we think. There's all sorts of other reasons why you, might you have absolutely no idea whether she has or not because you hadn't heard a word from her. So, yeah, no, yeah. Exactly. all kinds of stuff going on. Well, the gun room has a good supper together and we always we love a gun room supper. You know, Brian says they've been through so many things together that there's a little bit less of the usual formality with the captain attending here. Fielding and Welby points out, feel free to tell very long anecdotes. And, you know, all hands, un unlike Stephen's prediction, all hands really enjoy the 1787 port. Perhaps, O'Brien writes, because Killick said, I have decanted the 87, sir, which it was very crusty being so uncommon old. The last word <laughs> being uncommon loud, O'Brien writes. So as the third decanter goes around, Stephen, no longer lost in his thoughts, asks, would this be a sloop at all? And O'Brien writes that they, meaning the crew, had heard some pretty strange things from the doctor, but none so far beyond all probability, so very far, that for a while there was complete silence. Do you mean the nutmeg, doctor? Asked Jack at last. Certainly the nutmeg, God bless her, says Stephen. Bless her by all means, but she could not conceivably be a sloop while I have her, you know. Was she under the commander, she would be a sloop, but I have the honor to be on the post-captain's list, and that makes her as much a ship as any three-decker in the service. What puts such a wild fancy into your head? <laughs> so Stephen, you know, he says that a friend had asked his opinion as a naval man. Well, and as soon as Stevens says this, you know, the gun room members all look down at their plates with fixed expressions. They're, they're, <laughs> they're Stevens' opinion as a naval man. Uh, 
And and Stephen said that he told him that he took exception to the hero of this novel commanding a sloop taking a French frigate. But he had just realized that that's kind of what they aspire to do now, that this kind of sloop-like size ship was going to take the Cornelie. And he says, well, perhaps sloops do capture frigates. And O'Brien writes, oh, no, they cried. The doctor was wholly in the right. Never in the history of the Royal Navy has any sloop taken any frigate. It would have been flying in the face of nature. But on the other hand, said Jack, a post ship of much the same displacement and broadside weight of metal as a sloop has been known to do it. And it's like, what? Wait, what do you mean? So, you know, Jack goes on to tell him that it's right. It's the moral advantage of having a post captain aboard. And you can't help but think, wait a minute, we talked about moral advantage so much last chapter. And now moral advantage, instead of wrecking your marriage, makes you, you know, one ship easily able to defeat the other because the moral advantage of the post captain on board. So it it turns out the couples are not the only pairs of uh, adversaries in the world who, who wrestle for the perception of one over the other, right? The same thing happens in, the, in, in war, in the Navy, as was happening bet, you know, between partners in a marriage in the last chapter. It's not what you are, it's how the other person sees you as, and it's, that's, that's what we're always kind of wriggling and clawing our way around. Really, really great connection, Mike. Really, really good connection between the two <laughs> yeah. ideas here. Oh my gosh. Well, having gone into this now and just about kept the conversation civil, Jack thanks them for the splendid supper and in turn fielding thanks jack for the excellent wine this 87 port welby says hear him hear him that they're, they're all pretty well relaxed and well fed and well nourished now and jack looks up at the sky before he's turning in the breeze has freshened which sounds like good news for those of us who care about making a speedy uh, transit through this passage here speed has increased to eight knots three fathoms and the french are keeping up and Mike, on the face of it, eight knots and three fathoms is plenty. But it's being mentioned with such uh, pointed assurance here early in the chapter that we've all got to sort of shake our heads a little bit and doubt whether this is going to really play out. They're well into this passage and they're passing a fishing village just going past them uh, exactly where it was indicated on Jack's chart. So yet more reason to be confident about the whole navigation of it all that we have here. We get to eight bells. And Seymour relieves Richardson taking the watch. Now, Lieutenant Fielding, the first lieutenant, had come to ease Seymour into his first watch and is now helping Bonden and some of the men prepare this Jack Aubrey slash Lord Cochrane decoy that's going to be lowered into the water in just a moment. Jack tells Fielding to pull ahead a couple of cables so that they aren't hit by a stray ball, but to keep the stern lights visible to the French. And trusting that everybody's now got everything laid all along, Jack heads to bed. And we get now Jack's perspective on how the chase action between these two ships is evolving. The gunfire between the ships stops, just as Jack had thought that it would. And in the master's cabin, Jack sees that Killick has hung Jack's extra long hammock, the, the, the Jack Aubrey hammock for his imposing bulk, and that Jack is not, as he might have suspected, going to be sleeping in a dead man's hammock. And Mike, I love this further reflection on Killick's character. We had a... A, a, a pessimistic tone about Killick earlier on. Now we've got this really, really kind of warm, almost loving tone about Killick. Killick was in many ways a wretched servant, fractious, mean, overbearing to guests of inferior rank, hopelessly coarse. But in others, he was a pearl without a thorn. 
For a moment, Jack passed some other expressions in review, and having reached Bricks Without Price, he went to sleep. And a big smile on my face as I'm reading this. Not only for the Aubreyisms which you're having reported to as the Bricks Without Price and the Pearl Without Thorn, but just for the fact that, you know, Killick is a really, really precious servant and really a precious friend to Jack. Yeah, and you know, Killick, what a, you know, you talk about your, your kind of Dickens-like, well, Killick's not really a secondary character, but in some little ways he is too, but so well drawn out. I love that. Conway comes in at eight bells, wakes Jack up, and Jack's not surprised to learn that the nutmeg has lost speed. You know, we got that same thing going on as usual. Somewhere in the back of Jack's brain, even while he's sound asleep, he's kind of following what's going on with the ship. Seymour on deck reports that the breeze has dropped. There, You know, the speed's reported now at seven knots, and the Cornelie is a little farther behind, a little bit dimmer. The moon is near her height. So, Ian, you said we're going to be hearing about the moon again. Yep. And Jack knows, given where the moon is at the time, that the tides have been running west for some time now. So they've been running against the ship here. So they've traveled 31 sea miles per the logbook. But, and, 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 you know, that that actually isn't bad. It sounds good. But Jack knows that this graveyard watch, this one that he's going to be on, is going to be the decisive one because the tide, as he says, will have its say. This area he had learned before leaving, you know, knowing that the Cornelie was going to be going through here, has two high tides in the lunar day, and that this second one, the one they're in now, is stronger. But he could not figure out, no matter how many people he talked to, how much stronger it would be. From everybody and what little they knew in Batavia, you know, they figured it might be as much as two and a half knots, so that their relative speed would be decreased by two and a half knots. And he had planned in his thinking for it to be more than three, but he just doesn't know. What is it? You know, was that a safe assumption? Is my plan going to work? So I I love this navigation challenge, this navigation conundrum that's starting to emerge here. It turns out that eight knots is not the eight knots that we think it is. This late at night, it's really difficult to find points on the land to measure their relative movement. The lights in the villages that they go past are all out. He needs a clear fixed point to determine his relative speed. And just after three bells, he gets four points, four anchored fishing boats. And, and Mike, I'm, I'm going to breeze past this, not, not entirely convinced that anchored fishing boats count for the kind of navigational trigonometry he's doing here, but never mind, never mind. He sees these fishing boats anchored out there. He thinks this could be a good moment to compare their speed through the water and their speed over the land. Remember, he had said earlier on he wanted them to cast the log every hour. He has Oaks bring the log board, the chalk, the half-minute glass, and a lantern. He works out the triangles, takes his measurements, and realizes, if we're to believe O'Brien's version of Jack Aubrey navigation trig here, that the tide is flowing west at five and a half knots and is going to get faster as the moon moves further west. Five and a half knots is a really, really strong tide. Right. The ship's speed relative to the land then is in fact two miles an hour less than he planned. When the ship finishes its six-hour run, the end of the passage is going to be 12 miles further away than he had expected. The sun's going to be well up by the time they get there. So the whole plan with the decoy and the hiding behind the island in the dark, it's not going to work. And Jack reduces speed for a second time because the Cornelie herself is also falling behind. She's also, of course, sailing in this stronger current. He doesn't want to lose touch with her, but he doesn't know what to do. The text says, 
Jack leaned over the taffrail, watching the moonlit and slightly phosphorescent wake stream away. Clearly, there was now no hope whatsoever of carrying out his plan, and for some time he was lost in melancholy, even very bitter reflections. For some considerable time, while the muted life of a man of war by night went on behind him, the quiet voice of the quartermaster at the con, the replies of the helmsman, the murmur of the watch under the break of the forecastle and the gun crews below him, the striking of the bell, followed by, all's well, forecastle lookout, all's well from the stations right round the ship. But his naturally sanguine temperament had recovered somewhat before five bells, the dead hour of the night, and he greeted Stephen cheerfully enough. There you are, Stephen. How happy I am to see you. And right, for, for all the complicated syntax, it is really, really lovely writing here. It, it, it is. It, it, I love how not only the way O'Brien writes this, but to see Jack's mood kind of self-correct a little bit here and yeah. to be, yeah. you know, just well enough. And Stephen, I think, kind of takes it over the top that he's, you know, so glad to see him. Yeah. And I think... O'Brien is quite glad to have got his character Jack Aubrey to the point where he's got the emotional intelligence and the composure to kind of go go past a moment of melancholy like this. I suspect that the opposite is still true for Stephen. I think Stephen's still prone to dwell on his uh, on his own melancholy a little bit here. Great observation, Ian. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Well, Stephen is sorry to be so late. He says that this luxurious sleep overcame him. And, and Jack thinks that Stephen has come to watch what he calls the occultation of Menkar. But Stephen says, no, no, I, you know, I came to sit with you, you know, to sit with Jack during Jack's watch since he had heard that the battle will not begin until after the moon has set. So he's thinking, you know, I know my friend Jack is sitting there. It's the dark of night. It's this watch when, as Jack said, it's all dead. You know, I'm just going to go sit with him, which I thought was pretty awesome. But we've got this, you know, Jack sort of throwing out this occultation of Menkar. Ian, thoughts on that? I loved it when I saw the occultation of Menkar here. Menkar is the name of a star. And first of all, it's funny because Jack, who knows the stars like the back of his hand, obviously assumes that Stephen knows that this occultation is coming and that he's coming on deck to see this event. Stephen, A, no clue what Menkar is. B, no clue what occultation would be. And C, therefore, no reason to come and step out to see it. Occultation is where one celestial object is hidden behind another because you know something passes behind it. So normally something like the moon or the sun passing between the observer and this heavenly body. So I'm guessing this would have been a lunar occultation of Menkar. A little bit like a, a micro mini version of a solar eclipse, but just you know the star gets blinked out as as the as the moon goes by. From the Latin word occultus, and we all know this the stem word occult. And we associate that with clandestine, hidden, and secret. Well, it's the same root. And here, Jack is talking about a particular star being occulted by the moon. The star named, its Arabic name is Menkar. It's Alpha Ceti. That is to say, if it's Alpha, it can't be the second brightest, I don't think. Well, it's crazy. It, it's, it's odd in that way, in that it is the second brightest, even though it's Alpha, which is a, a strange thing in that because there's a, another star which is at the kind of head of this constellation which where i guess the solar thing passes by so you kind of see it first and people use that to pin the constellation but in fact this one's brighter and this one not only is brighter but it's kind of a 
twinned star that sometimes people see it and it's in two very different colors because another one like double the number of light years and I can't remember they're amazingly huge numbers this star is late in its life and is reddish so it's kind of expanded way big with this reddish light the one behind it so many 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 you know double the number of light years is young and this you know like blazing white blue white hot so, um, you know, as this one's burning out, that one's there. So there's all kinds of things around this star, including, as you say, this weird name that, wait a minute, it can't be the brightest and be, I mean, the second brightest and be called Alpha. So another unusual thing about Mencar. Oh, fantastic. So b- besides the fact that we've got this connection to uh, as- astronomy and to the mythical origins of the stars, like th- there's another connection to stars here that we've picked up on before, and maybe we should dig into again now that we're here thinking about Menkar. This is our hi and hello, and and you know we're so glad that you're listening, Steve Morris. <laughs> and this is <laughs> this is our reference back to you and Scott's excellent Star Trek podcast, Enterprise Incidents, because Menkar was featured in Star Trek in, a, in an episode and in a movie, although slightly disguised here a little bit. So if we go back to 1967 in the Star Trek Space Seed episode, it's the first time we meet Khan, you know, Ricardo Montalban, you know, and then later, of course, we see him again in the movie in 1982, Wrath of Khan. Well, they're on a planet that, you know, they're kind of in suspended animation. Later in the movie, they escape from this planet and it's not Alpha CD, it's CD Alpha 5. So this, you know, the Bayer designation of Alpha CD gets reversed here. But we couldn't help, since there's a Star Trek reference, to say hi to Steve because he's always great. You know, you know him from Cinephiles. I hope you also know him from Enterprise Incidents. If you don't, you really should. And, and once again, Mike, these references are really close in time. We're talking late 60s, blending into the early 70s by the time it was in popular consciousness. I have a huge pile of doubts as to whether Patrick O'Brien would have watched Star Trek, but who cares? Who cares? Part of the cultural landscape, man, and part of the storytelling, you know, myth-making that people like to engage in. Great stuff. You know, as as much as we don't think it could have happened, this is one where the it, calendar at least doesn't work against us because we're talking about a 67 yeah. reference, a 1982 reference, and this book being written... 1991. So we're well down the canon a ways. But I, I don't see Patrick O'Brien sitting there in cool years streaming Wrath of Khan and going, oh, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a cult men car, right? But what the heck? We can still have fun with it. Yeah, we can. Well, not knowing that all of this was to come many centuries later, Steve, Stephen, Stephen's oblivious to all the connections to science fiction and, uh, and Gene Roddenberry. Jack thanks Stephen, says, uh, I'm sorry and a little bit ashamed to say there will now be no battle at all, or at least not for a great while, or at least not in the form that he'd hoped, since the Cornelly is so slow, and he, that is to say Jack, had been mistaken about the tidal flow. And we get this tone of just, oh, it's just the disappointment growing into almost desperation and kind of embarrassment here. It's added to a little bit in some of the uh, the interaction that comes here. Um, it's going to be light before they're out of the passage, and Midshipman Oaks, it says here, with his young, blubbered face, even paler, even more pitiful in the moonlight, reports seven knots of speed. And of course, Oaks is not grieving the ship's terribly slow speed. He's actually grieving the loss of Miller. But it's really poignant that he's in this place of you know regret and despondency in a similar tone to what Jack's landed in here. Right. 
Jack explains that the passage is only two miles closer every hour, not the four that he'd planned on. And he gives a little account of his own mental state here. He says, it made me quite low in my spirits, I assure you. Absolutely hipped blue devils for a while. But then it occurred to me that it was not the end of the world if we missed our rendezvous with Tom and that the right thing to do was to keep the Cornelie in sight, lead her well beyond the strait, fetch a wide cast and work to windward of her in the open sea. With this breeze, we can make 12 knots to her seven. Of course, Jack's got a new plan. He, he <laughs> always has. We love this resilience. We love this positive spirit. Maybe this is more like something that Stephen would have been thinking of earlier rather than running and sneaking and hiding behind the mythical island. So maybe Stephen's thoughts about this have come true a little bit here. You can't keep Jack Aubrey down. We kind of wonder then, what about this new plan? Stephen says, well, okay, if we try to pursue the Cornelly and still keep the rendezvous with Tom Pullings, can, can, we, can that be done? Is that possible? Jack says, well, if I try to find Tom in time, he'd have to spread all the sail they have and a hair off, abandoning the Cornelly and not knowing then where she'd head. The Cornelly's captain would realise what the nutmeg was doing in all likelihood and would manoeuvre so that she's not ever to be found again. So he's going to have to do this, whatever this next round of manoeuvres with the Cornelly is going to be, without Tom in company. They don't have the time and the space to do this and maintain any, any kind of deception about their intent to the Cornelly's crew. Stephen says that, you know, at least they can meet Tom at Botany Bay, or he says more appropriately, Sydney Coves, where they'll actually yeah, meet him. Yeah. And he says, anyways, that's a more sure, a genteel, a more comfortable rendezvous. And I, I think Stephen's a, a little bit assuring his friend here. <laughs> I tried to keep him away from these <laughs> hip blue devils here. Well, pl plus he's got a very optimistic picture of Botany Bay and Sydney Cove compared to what we know, us who read the rest of the canon. But never mind. Genteel is probably not a word. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's funny. I think his his joy of his heart springs right now from how much he longs to see a platypus. You know, not <laughs> certainly not how much he longs to be back in Botany Bay. That's right. And, and you know, he's telling Jack how much he... You know, he can't wait to see one of these. And Jack says, you know, you, you mentioned it the last time we were there. And O'Brien says that, you know, Stephen remembers that damnable hellish time with all the soldiers frowning on them, scarcely allowing them to go to shore. He says, you know, that he only saw one, you know, small green, well-known parakeet. Um, so, you know, you're, you're right. You know, we learned that Botany Bay and Sydney Cove certainly weren't all they had hoped it could be before. And Stephen's a little worried about it now. But he says, it was shameful. New Holland is in my debt. Like, they better be better to me this time than last time. And now Jack kind of the shoot goes to the other foot. Jack's trying to console Stephen a little bit. He says, never mind. It will be much better this time. You shall watch great flights of platypuses at your leisure. And Stephen pauses and says, my dear, they're mammals, furry animals. You know, he's thinking, Jack's thinking they're birds here. And Jack says, I thought you said they laid eggs. Stephen says, so they do. Oh, and that is what's so <laughs> delightful. They also have bills like a duck. So Stephen's explaining this to Jack. And Jack, I think, is kind of looking at him a little quizzically and says, no wonder you long to see one. <laughs> you know, just just like O'Brien, as we have this incredible kind of cat and mouse and this all this uncertainty and then a new plan, we get to giggle with Stephen and Jack for a minute here in the middle of the dead night. 
Very good. Well, Mike, maybe this is a good moment in the middle of the dead night for us and our listeners to take a moment to go and have a giggle over a platypus. Um, we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Um, I hope your platypuses have been fed. While we're paused for the mid-episode break, um, we'd like to remind you that we'd love to hear from you on our social media channels. We're active on Twitter these days. You can find us by looking for at Whole Lubbers on Twitter. You can follow us and you can join in the conversation there. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Whole. We tend to hang out as well on Facebook on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society and the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society Facebook pages. And every now and again, you'll find one of us in uh, on Reddit on r slash Aubrey Matron. So reach out to us there. Tell us how it's going. Tell us what you're liking about the show. Tell us what you're liking about your journey reading and hearing and listening to these fantastic stories. By the way, it's been a week or two, in fact, I'd say a month or two since we had a guest, and we're really excited to tell you that coming up in the next couple of weeks, we have a really great interview with special guest uh, Neil Buttery, who is blogger, author, and food historian, who's going to talk to us a lot about food in the Regency era. So we're really looking forward to sharing that with you, hopefully as I sit here next week. So Mike, let's get back to the uh, life aboard the nutmeg here. Um, where are we in this chase and what's happening next? Well, you know, it's it's eight bells. Fielding comes on duty to relieve Jack, but Jack stays on deck. And, and Bondin comes back to Jack and Jack stops him and tells him that, you know, the decoy is not going to work. And he explains mm-hmm. the situation to him. You know, I think he's feeling like he felt what he told Stephen. But Bondin says, no, no, I'm, I only came back to say that Killick has a pot on the hob and a dish of burgoo. And should you like it on deck or below? So Bondin's like, hey, it's all good for me. I'm just letting you know Vittles is up, essentially. And Jack turns to Stephen, who says, below. You know, he wants to go eat it below because he's got to go see his patients pretty soon. And Jack says, well, can we just wait five minutes, you know? And Jack says, to see the Crescent Venus. Stephen says, Venus? Oh, God love us. Oddly disconcerted, O'Brien writes. So Stephen's oddly disconcerted here. And Stephen then notes that the sea seems less agitated, just as Jack said it would be. And Jack says, yes, you know, it is. I knew that because the tide's about to turn. Now millions of tons of water are going to pour back going eastward, the direction that we're going in now. Um, And Jack thinks it's going to flow even faster because of, you know, he's looking at the weather and he says there's, you know, going to be a breeze and squalls pushing it. And O'Brien says that Stephen could see no promise of any kind, meaning, you know, he, he doesn't see any of these breezes or squalls coming. All he sees is a profounder darkness in the West. Um, you know, and it's like, mm, okay, so, uh, but Stephen O'Brien writes, knowing that salamanders, cats, sea monsters, all had senses that he did not possess, he agrees, and he looked at the risen Venus, a vacillating form so near the horizon, but extraordinarily brilliant, and sometimes in the telescope, distinctly horned. And, you know, 
I, I'm not quite sure what O'Brien's getting at here. You know, there's so much going on in that paragraph. We had this, you know, sort of this disconcerted Stephen all over the Venus thing. And then, you know, remembering that in the telescope, she's distinctly horned. Mm. I just, you know what? I just don't think I'm going to touch that now. Maybe we could ask, you know, <laughs> Ava Sandor or, uh, <laughs> you know, Rachel McMillan or somebody to chime in on what's going on with Venus and O'Brien and Stephen here. And me personally, you know, with this huge change in tides and Jack's new plan, I'm, I'm like you, Ian, this has been a long night, but I'm really kind of fascinated to say what, what the heck's going to happen here. Yeah. And it, it, it can't be a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence that we've got these, these, uh, these references in these juxtapositions here. Uh, meanwhile, there's, there's a lot of conversation below decks going on in this chapter, and we're back below decks, and we're back having dinner. Jack and Stephen are reminiscing about their voyages aboard the Leopard, about their trip to Desolation Island in the novel of the same name, um, about their experiences with Mrs. Louisa Wogan. And uh, by the way, in, they do a little bit of what I would call retconning here. They're a bit of re- retrospectively telling us exactly where Desolation Island is, because it turns out there's some ambiguity about really where Desolation Island is. And this little moment here in this book is helping to put that to rights for us. Jack, thinking about Mrs. Wogan, remembers her spirit. He really admired this great, vivacious spirit that she had. She had been transported, we had learned, for pistoling the runners who came to arrest her. But Jack goes on and reveals himself you know, to be to be pretty unenlightened here, really, for all his admiration of a strong female character like Mrs. Wogan. But it will not do, he says. It will not do, you know. It will not do having women aboard. <laughs> so let's let's remember that imprecation of Jack's and remember that in a book or so's time when we have another case of a woman aboard. We'll we'll have to see. I can't help but wondering if all this Venus stuff and all this woman on board isn't isn't uh, you know another longer play forward to say. Just wait. Yeah, next book coming off the shelf. I'm coming back to this. Just wanted to forewarn you. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, we've been in a fairly masculine world, masculine and martial yes. world for a good two books now. Maybe that's a little reassurance that we're going to get back into the world of men and women. And women have agency and men, women playing important characters here. So yes. you've got that to look forward to. Excellent. Stephen's porridge, that is to say Stephen's burgoo, slops out of its bowl. And this, this is triggered by the change in movement of the ship the tide has changed, and Jack, one of Jack's squalls that he's been talking about comes in, just like clockwork. Stephen heads down to see his patients. He's concerned about Harper. He's concerned about potential infections in splinter wounds, and Jack goes on down with him, going down the ladder. And Mike, I'm I'm a little bit nervous having a, a detailed description of Stephen going down a ladder because, in lots of other cases in the books, this ends up with Stephen pitching down and getting some kind of injury. But no. Going down the ladder is merely a conversation point. Stephen points out how sweet the nutmeg smells, even close to the sick berth. And we're going to come back to the idea of stink aboard ships later on. Meanwhile, they hear, really confusingly, a triple crash overhead. And then they hear both stern chasers firing at the same time. We head back up. We're with Jack Aubrey now on the quarterdeck. From the quarterdeck... Jack has seen that the change of tide, the rising breeze, and a bit of makeshift canvas have all conspired to bring the Cornerly up in the middle of the channel, hidden from the view of the nutmeg by this squall. The Cornerly has yawed and fired a full broadside at the nutmeg, the main topsails blowing to leeward, billowing and making a noise like thunder. Jack quickly calls for the 
quartermaster to port the helm so that they won't run diagonally across the Cornelie's path. And he calls for the sails to be eased. Fielding hollers that she won't steer. The tiller rope's been shot away and a ball is wedged between the rudder and the stern post. And Mike, all the way through these last two chapters, we've had this action and this chase with the Cornelie slightly at arm's length and slightly slow paced and slightly not, not very thrilling, to be honest. But now I think we're back into thrill territory here. We get really up close and personal with Jack. Yeah, and all of this started with Jack saying, you know, well, you know, a lucky shot of ours or a lucky shot of theirs could make all the difference here. So Jack gives these immediate sailing orders. He runs down to the cabin, gives immediate firing orders to the chasers. He looks out the stern window and he sees Richardson down, you know, kind of down on the ship in the water in his nightshirt. Um, He tells Jack that the ball appears to be mostly wedged, that it hasn't pierced the ship. Water keeps coming up over Richardson's head as he's trying to speak. So Jack gets a rope tied to kind of the the post by his window there in the stern window and grabs a big crowbar and jumps into the water after telling them, you know, tell the bosun to haul the helm hard a starboard the moment that tackles our ship. So, you know, they've got to replace some ropes here and then boom, I want you to turn it as hard as you can. And so he's got, Jack's got this great big crowbar. It's kind of pulling him down into the sea. He swims back up and the Cornelie fires her broadside again. The chasers go off in reply and, and the, you know, Jack's right below them. So he's deafened by this thing. And O'Brien writes, with one foot on the ring plate and his left arm around the rudder, he stabbed the crow into the space beneath the half-buried ball and tried to force it out while Richardson levered it away from the other side. Wave after wave drowned them in foam for the nutmeg was gathering way and it seemed hopeless. Jack's strength was going fast. He was near losing his grip on the iron when the whole rudder to which they were so intimately attached gave a groan and moved slightly to larboard. So the bosun's turning here and a last wrench and the ball is free. Man, I'll tell you, I can, you know, I can see this shot in the in the series, whoever is going to produce this series. I mean, this is, man, this is up close and personal. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, we've earned it. We've earned a moment because Jack's been on top of this situation and kind of calm and resourceful. Now he's earned the moment to do a bit of genuine physical courage a bit of self-sacrifice a bit of raw heroism and i I love that 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 sentence there a last wrench and the ball fell free that could have come from the pulpiest trashiest thriller novel of of the last two centuries but because it comes at the end of this build-up that we've had here it's great and we love it and we're all clapping and cheering here as jack manages to free the rudder up he's exhausted he's he's pretty much almost spent we learned that he he can not even pull himself in he drops the crowbar. He can't climb up. The crew, in fact, pull him up. And also they pull Richardson aboard. Jack tells Bondon, straight away, don't mind me, resume firing. We've got to keep up the pattern of fire on the cornerly here. Meanwhile, Fleming races in, reporting that Lieutenant Fielding says the ship steers again. Yeah, of course, thanks to Jack. Jack says, okay, put her before the wind. And he happens to glance over at Richardson and sees this bleeding wound on Richardson's leg. And this is where the, the pendant hook must have caught him. Jack sees a waster carrying Richardson below to the doctor and tells Richardson, follow the doctor orders. You know, no, no more heroism for you. Get yourself fixed up here. Jack sees the frigate through the window. And Mike, a little flash here back 
to uh, the, the, the Wachsamheit and the terrible chase um, through the South Atlantic here, looking astern at this ship. There's still a stream of water jetting from the Cornelie's starboard chain pump. So all is still not okay aboard the Cornelie. And up on deck, Jack learns that a spare yard has already been cleared away. The topsail is passing down, but the mast is too injured. So we're stuck here with the rig under power. Jack can't count on all of this speed advantage that he'd been talking about before. He tells them to bend a sail from the cross jack yard, which is a little way of kind of dealing with the fact that he no longer has an intact mizzen yard here. Meanwhile, the Cornelie fires her bow chases at them and the bosun. The bosun's not worried about the shots. He's worried about the fact that this idea of bending a sail to a crossjack is something that he's never done before in his life. The fore and mizzen top gallant masts are swayed up. This strange new sail is set on the crossjack and the hands are sent to breakfast by the half watch with four picked hands and first lieutenant fielding at the wheel. And Mike, this, this is a very, very evenly matched contest and we're still not at the end of it. That's for sure. Well, the Cornelie, you know, every time she stops yaws to fire, she falls behind. Well, she's made up the distance again, and she's gaining fast, and both ships' chasers are still barking at each other. And Jack alters course so that the cross Jack doesn't become the main course. And, and you know, Jack, I just love how, you know, he thinks of these things that even the bosun's never seen, and now has, you know, moved the ship to make it work here. So the nutmeg gathers way. Uh, they add two jibs, and the ship's speeds are now as equal as they can be with the nutmeg missing her main topsail. So he has the larboard cannonades standing by since you know he can turn two points and bring them to bear. They're just close enough now that his carronades will still work. And he sends for the gunner to come up and has Mr. Seymour standing by as they put the helm a lee. Uh, Jack takes the wheel. He's crouching under this cross jack sail. You know, he brings the nutmeg around and they fire. The Cornelie puts her helm hard over and answers with a full broadside. You know, and, and you know, I'm I'm sitting here in the midst of all this firing thing. Weren't, weren't we for like the longest time thinking that, you know, the, the Cornelie has no gunpowder, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, they have plenty and despair. They've got to burn, literally. Yeah. That's it. Well, Seymour's division fires six shots hard and fast. And, and, you know, then they're off again. The Cornelie resumes chasing the nutmeg and has the advantage of the faster ebb. And she's kind of determined. I, I think, you know, the Cornelie's now thinking, okay, she doesn't have a main top mast. And, you know, if I can stay on her, she won't have one. And we're going to, we're going to grab her. So, she keeps turning and firing these broadsides at every opportunity. The nutmeg sometimes, you know, jigs and, and fires with the carronades, which are usually a little more accurate. And their shooting speed, again, is still fast that, you know, even though the Cornelie is firing broadsides, they're firing these few carronades so fast that they're exchanging ball for ball. So it's it's hot and heavy here, Ian. It is. And again, Jack's not against an enemy here that's some, some kind of a slouch or is badly motivated or badly trained. Um, Jack's not surprised by the fact that the, the guns are accurate, but the accuracy is declining, he says. These men have been pumping all night. I wonder, he says, they can run up their guns at all, let alone point them straight. Five minutes after making that remark to Fielding, Jack curses himself. Yeah, of course. Jack, you should not have been saying that kind of stuff out loud. Grasp a belaying pen, though. Why don't right. you? Just as they're about to sway up the nutmeg's new topmast, as the far end of the passage opens up there, the cornerly yours and fires. 
two slow, careful, deliberate broadsides. The half-hoisted mass falls and pierces the deck, wrecking the carefully worked heel and fid hole. And as, as this happens, Mike, I'm thinking, God, you know, mast shot free plummeting. I'm, I'm thinking mast goes through the hull of the ship, and that's that's good night. That's the end of the ball game here. Mike. But no, but no, there's damage, but there's still hope. The corner lee, meanwhile, had lost distance with her double turn just as they reach the place where Jack had intended to elude the French. We get a new cry from the lookout. And Mike, this is a significant cry from the lookout. The lookout cries, sail ho! And one by one, four ships appear. And Mike, th- th- this this has got me looking. Hang on, which, which chapter are we in? Which, which chapter? Right. Is this Is this the last chapter? Sail ho! Huh. No, no, this is only chapter six. Okay, let, let's read on here. As these four ships appear, the last of the damage to the Nutmeg's top mast is repaired. Fielding starts to sway it up again. And then the top gallants goes up and they cross the yards. The Nutmeg's chasers start firing again, now trying to cripple the cornerly before she can knock away one of Nutmeg's other masts. The first of those ships glides out from the high ground ahead, a mile away. Steering southeast at 10 knots with American colors. And Mike, there. A little bit of a heart sink moment here. American colors. Two more follow. They're heavy sloops of war or maybe small frigates. Again, both with American colors. Signals exchanging at great pace. A fourth ship. And the text says his stony heart broke into flower. He walked back fast, not running to the quarter deck. Mr. Richardson and the yeoman of the signals, he called. And Richardson, the signal lieutenant, came hobbling from the waist, his leg thick with bandages. Titus, the yeoman, followed him, racing aft from the heads. Well, I, I love the bucolic, you know, Richardson's had his leg bandaged up and uh, Titus was just busy, you know, <laughs> busy having a quiet moment. There. We've been talking a lot about the lavatories. Titus right. was occupied in right. the heads. This one hadn't been shot away, thank goodness. No, exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack tells us what's going on. Now we know what Jack has seen. Colours, he says. Jack at the Jack staff. Private signal. Diane's number. And chase to the northwest. Then telegraph, meaning write signals letter by letter rather than using a code. Signals. Well met Tom. All he says from the top gallant and the stay and a couple more Jacks on the yard. And Mike, this is a great moment. Well met Tom. We now know one of these four ships is the surprise. Right. I, you know, I was listening to Patrick Tall do this in the car and, uh, you know, I just cheered and pounded the roof at well met top because after the three Americans, I thought, oh, no, we're going to lose another ship. Oh, and, and I, you know, I, like you, sail ho. It's like, what chapter are we in? And now well met Tom. All right. Chapter's over, right? Yeah, exactly. Well met Tom. That could have been like period. End of chapter. Right. But no, but no, we're still going. Jack sends midshipman Reed down to congratulate the doctor and tell him that the surprise is in sight. Jack's about to give more orders when a thought freezes his heart. Maybe, maybe this is not what Jack thinks. Maybe the surprise has been captured by an American squadron. Jack goes forward. He sees his colours. He sees the private signal. He sees directions to the chase flying and watches the surprise carefully. She had hauled her wind, says O'Brien, and she was running past the other three with her familiar greyhound ease. He paid no attention to the topmast being swayed up and fitted. Titus, the signal yeoman, still composing the message, well met, Tom, and therefore the signal can be countermanded. When, at last, the surprise's colours gave a twitch and raced down. 
they were replaced by her own to the cheering of far more of the nutmegs hands than had any business to be looking about them and glancing aft jack saw that the cornelly had worn and was heading for the heavy rain squalls in the northwest bang the roof of the car again (laughs) exactly i thought oh my gosh he fooled me no he didn't it is them yeah we're all good ah well Reed returns with the doctor's compliments and the joy of the meeting, but says he'll be on deck as soon as he is free. And by the time Stephen gets to the deck, the nutmeg has restored her main topsail, her main topgallant, and her man of war's pennant is flying, and she's turned to pursue the Cornelie. The surprise slows down so she doesn't come up on the nutmeg too fast. And and uh, Stephen you know, arrives on deck, and there's this contrast between this drying blood on his dusty black cloak and apron yeah, yeah. and his big shining face. So you know, Stephen calls out, there she is. I should have recognized her anywhere. What joy. Yes, indeed, said Jack. And I am so glad you came before we had to clue up the cross, Jack. You may never see another, says Jack. And I just, I love Jack's always optimistic that, Stephen, you're going to be so excited by this nautical stuff. And Stephen, trying to play a good, you know, a good friend, says, pray point it out. Jack says, why it is this sail just above our heads set on the cross, Jack yard? Stephen looks up playing his part, says, a very handsome sail, too, upon my word, ornamental to the last degree. And Stephen can't help himself. He's back looking at the surprise. How she comes along the brave boat. Jose, Jose, there is Martin in the front of the the thing. I forget its name. I shall wave my handkerchief. (laughs) Remember that old sea dog we had as Stephen referring to himself in the last chapter or so, you know, now, you know, looking and trying to figure out what the whatchamacallit is. Is. So I'm glad to see that at least two of us, Stephen and I, have, have the same degree of nautical acuity. It's a great moment. And uh, Stephen's been a little bit half in, half out. He's been kind of a little bit sniping and a little bit half-hearted and a little bit grudging and a little bit snappish. But I love the fact that the Jose Jose for him is absolutely genuine. Oh, there's yes. the surprise. There's Nathaniel Martin. Stephen gets part of his old life back a little bit, I think. The surprise pulls up within pistol shot and its crew of happy grinning faces are looking over at Jack and Stephen on the nutmeg. Jack asks Tom how he's doing. We, we fall back into naval familiarity here. Like, of course, of course, I've met you on the high seas in the Pacific, you know, after thousands and thousands of miles. Yeah, how are you? Tom replies, blooming, sir, blooming, and says that he hopes he sees Jack and all our friends well. Jack says, never better. A very courtly, very British way of kind of chatting over the ocean here. He tells Tom, to chase the Cornelie, but not to close her until Jack has come up so that she can strike to the two of them honourably without anyone else getting knocked about. Jack asks who Tom's consorts are. They are the Triton, an English letter of Mark, commanded this by this guy, Captain Goffin. I, I, I love how his nickname is Horseflesh Goffin. We never really find out why that is. It's got a sort of P.G. Woodhouse character to it, this nickname. Oh yeah, good old Horseflesh. How's he doing? 28 guns, 12 pounders and two long nines. The others are American prizes. Tom heads into the rain squall after the French, just as he's been ordered by Aubrey. And as the surprise pulls away, the other officers and the crew members greeted each other across the water. And there are people here who've got banter and connections uh, and beef going way, way back. Stephen tells Martin that he's seen an orangutan. First thing he wants to say is about the orangutan. 
right. some of the surprises are teasing the nutmeg about her cross jack and what a strange and strange and slightly uh, eccentric thing it is to have a sail set on the cross jack. The nutmegs, meanwhile, who are new to this whole situation, are amazed at the familiarity between their surprises and their captain and the doctor. They had heard tales about Jack and Stephen from Killick and Bondon, tales about how important and wealthy Stephen is, about his amazing medical powers and his royal clientele, but they'd never heard of the surprise, and here they are, faced with this whole other nautical family that Jack and Stephen belong to. Well, by the time the nutmegs fixes her sails and turns, the surprise has vanished in the squall. And there's this long 30 minutes as they worry about this, you know, kind of this iron coast that they can't see. Their decks are all awash because it's pouring down. And Jack's concerned that the surprise may not realize how slow the Cornelie is and come up on her too quick, um, you know, and, and be kind of sailing right into her heavy guns too fast. And there's so much thunder and lightning going on that he realizes if they're if they're pounding it out ahead of him, he's not going to hear them. Adams, in the meantime, so we're you know we're kind of tense here. I'm, I'm gripping my chair arms a little bit, and Adams approaches Jack. Uh, O'Brien tells us they both look like drowned rats, and he reports that the gunner is concerned about the crowbar that Jack left over the side. <laughs> and um, Mr. Fieldings has told Adams that, that it was okay to, to bring up the matter with the captain. So Adams says that the, the gunner doesn't want to ask, uh, but he would really appreciate it if the captain would countersign the books on this item as, you know, as kind of the ship's purser and, and, and acting master, along with Mr. Fielding as the first lieutenant. And so, you know, it's kind of this comic relief moment for me of, you know, here we are in the middle of all this. Oh, by the way, could we get the books right here? And and O'Brien writes that there's this huge triple peal of thunder and a reek of sulfur. And Jack says, as O'Brien writes, quite mildly, put me in mind of it when I am signing papers. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of, 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 of Lyndon Johnson, the president at a news conference when the U.S. had just invaded Cambodia, a terrible time, but but Johnson has just been told this and said he's not going to answer any questions. And so, of course, the first news reporter asks him immediately, and he just looks at him and says, son, what kind of chicken shit question is that to ask the leader of the free world? And, and I love that in contrast to Jack's manner here, quite mildly, put me in mind of that when I am signing papers. This 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 isn't really the time, Adam. So, so. There will come another time, but that time is right. not Right. <laughs> oh, it's great. The, the squall ends and the visibility clears and we now get a fresh view on what's happening here. The surprise we see is lying to 500 yards ahead and there's no other ship on the sea. Jack realizes that all the boats around her and all the men coming on board, the sight of all of this means that the Cornelie had foundered. Jack calls them for any boat that will swim and for a decent coat and hat and breeches. And as he prepares to head across to the surprise, he remembers to himself that the surprise is actually Stephen's private property. So he sends a note with an invitation to say, Dr. Matron, why don't you join me coming aboard your ship? Uh, Bennett reports that Stephen is presently engaged going at it with a saw. So taking somebody's limb off who's had some kind of injury. And Jack, probably relieved, I would think, goes over in the small cutter, the only undamaged boat aboard the nutmeg. The surprise, we learn, had already shipped man ropes and white-gloved side boys. She received him in style, and there was a spontaneous, disorganized but hearty cheer 
as he ran up to the gangway where Tom Pullings greeted him with an iron grip. Tom reports that they saw her, the Connolly, getting her boats over the side when they came out of the squall. She had been going under. They picked up people swimming and clinging to hen coops. But here is her commanding officer, sir, succeeded his captain in the action. He speaks English and I told him he was to surrender to you. He turned with a gesture of introduction and there, among the group of officers, British and French over to leeward, was Jean-Pierre Duménil known to us previously as Pierrot. Right. He came forward, pale and almost dead with fatigue, offering his sword. Jean-Pierre, cried Jack, advancing to meet him. By God, I am so happy to see you. I was afraid that... No, no. Keep your sword and give me your hand. End of chapter six. Woo! Man, what a great moment. Oh, it is. It's a great moment. And boy, I'll tell you, it's one of those chapters that I, I, I just had no idea exactly what's going to happen here. Is is the nutmeg going to get lost? Are they going to make it? Are they not going to? I mean, no idea. They kept kind of going back and forth here. Yeah. And 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 partly that works because it was a very evenly matched contest. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Partly it works right. because if you're already into the canon, there, there are some things being trailed for you here that sound like they're familiar and that you begin to expect that the outcome will be such and such, but you realize that, you know, it's not going to work out quite that way. And O'Brien's toying with us a little bit, presenting some very familiar things, but keeping us guessing about where they all, you know, about what they all add up to. And right. I, I love that it's, it's Jean-Pierre who has taken over as commander of this ship. It's almost as if he had been the sort of hidden hero of the last two chapters without us realizing it. And, and, and we could just as easily have told the story of this chapter it would have been a perfect Patrick O'Brien action these last couple of chapters if we'd been aboard the Connolly with Jean-Pierre instead of with Jack and with Stephen. And the the way that final bit of business plays out is the exact mirror image of the way Captain Christie Pallier had treated Jack when the Sophie was taken by the Dessay back in, uh, in, in Master and Commander. So it's a really nice button on this whole thing here. And a reminder that we're not so far from each other. French and English... Napoleonic, Royal Navy, vanquished, victor, repaired, sunk. You know, we're, we're just a hair's breadth away from each other. Right, right. Well, you know, with all these uncertainties and the twists and turns, you know, this writing, again, to me, it's so much like real life. And that, as is so often the case in real life, you know, the winning stroke is not some big blockbuster hero finish, you know, that... that no. Um, it, it could be that the Cordelie's end was not some amazing shot at the end. It was this constant pumping and then turning back into this big flow ebb, you know, that and, and that's what decided the battle in the long run. Another shot either way, you know, could have had a different effect here. So uh, it does my heart good that Jack still is this gracious officer, this yeah. good friend. Yeah. And, and is so happy, as you say, Ian, to be able to reciprocate, to say, ah, as your uncle did to me, I do to you, his nephew. And, and of course, I, I think even were it not just his nephew, it's just the way Jack is with honor. It's the same, you know, this is the way we athort ships hat wearing guys do, because that's, that's the way we do it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. And it's a, a little connection. I, I love the fact that, uh, these ships crews are circling the globe. Uh, each is a little family and each is a little isolated. And then they come across each other and the, the kind of the, the, the stories cross. And we have 
we have no idea, but we can now guess what's happened in Jean-Pierre's story. What's been the story of the Cornelie and what have they encountered? And what's going to happen next then for the surprise of the nutmeg? We're together now in the same patch of ocean, having been apart for, I forget how many chapters and how many chunks of how many books. Right. But are the nutmeg and the surprise going to go on their separate way? Are we straight back to Jack plus Tom plus Killick plus Bondon aboard the surprise again? Or is the story of the nutmeg, as the book's title suggests, going to keep being our focus? Yeah. yeah. Wherever we go, Mike, I think I'd be sorry to leave some of the characters that we've met aboard the nutmeg. We've been we've had some great uh, great people to encounter there. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. I, you know, I, I can't wait to see some of the surprises and the reunion. And at the same time, it's like, no, 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 no. I, I love a lot of these people in the nutmeg here. What, what are we going to do here? And I, I guess there's only one way to find out, right? What do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, Mike, with all my heart. <laughs> genteel <laughs> close the squeaky door one more time oh no there's more oh the groceries are coming. okay easy mo okay all right door's closing and we're back good so